Thank you, Alicia. Will and Alicia have recently joined our membership, so thankful she can serve through music this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church service at this time. The rest of us are turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. had the privilege of serving at a summer camp for many years before serving in the teen portion and with the adults. We served in the junior camp, Becky and I did. We had several staff who'd work for us and, you know, juniors are very easy to impress, four through sixth graders. We call them, you know, they're almost pre-people as they continue to, to grow up and and, uh, and, and they, they're easy to have heroes. You know, you can, very, you can put on a, a uniform or stand tall and they automatically look up to you. We had a a guy who worked for us named Wade. Wade was a true outdoorsman. And we would take these juniors on a hike to a waterfall. And uh, Wade was one of the lead counselors. The, ch- the kids thought he was Superman. But what he did that day at the waterfall enshrined him as a hero in their hearts forever. Wade, our, our responsibility was to go to the waterfall, to the swimming hole at the bottom of the waterfall and make sure everything was clear. Because in North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina, there are all sorts of snakes there are copperheads, there are brown-banded water snakes, there are all sorts of snakes that some hurt and some can actually do great damage, even kill you if you're not careful. And so our responsibility uh, before the kids got there was to, to wade into the water and, and to clear the area and shoo them off and get, get the snakes out of the way. And we had just done that and it started the swim time and Wade was uh, standing in, uh, in about knee-deep of water when out of the woods there came a brown-banded water snake swimming towards the watering hole with the kids. And as you can imagine, fourth through sixth graders seeing a snake, they just went nuts. Now, the snake was harmless. I mean, if it would bite you, it's not poisonous, and it, would, it wouldn't really bother you at all. But uh, Wade seized on the opportunity to enshrine himself forever as the greatest man of all time. And so he jumped into the water, as a true outdoorsman would do, grabbed the snake by the tail to throw it up into the woods. And as he grabbed the snake by the tail and picked it up, it turned around and bit him right on the hand. And, of course, this is happening with about 200 juniors, about 30 counselors and support staff watching on. And he takes the snake and shakes the head like that. It goes down. He starts twirling it above his head. This is a true story. And cracks it like a whip. And the head goes one direction and the body goes another direction. And then he takes the body of the snake and throws it up into the woods and resumes his post, and all of us are in stunned silence. <laughs> now that is a hero. Right? You have to be careful with snakes. Some snakes are not worth messing with. We had copperheads that if they bit you, they would they'd do some great damage. We actually had a couple of our counselors throughout the time, the years that I was there, get bit by copperheads and and their legs would swell up and they would need antivenom in order to keep them from a prolonged sickness. About a year ago, back in March of 2022, a man in Raleigh, uh, North, or in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, excuse me, was bitten while caring for an African gaboon viper, one of the deadliest snakes in the entire world. He was immediately rushed to the hospital, and by some miracle, this unnamed man, I tried to find his name, I couldn't find it, this unnamed man survived. It took months of treatment, 44 vials of antivenom, which are not covered by insurance and cost $10,000 a dose. 
This man was not expected to survive. In fact, the, both the medical personnel, the doctor who oversaw the treatment, and the emergency firefighter who um, rescued him and took him to the hospital and did some emergency medicine there to prepare him for the hospital, were given an award this past year, uh, the highest award given by the governor of North Carolina for stepping in and rescuing this man who'd been bitten by this snake and the venom had been injected into his system. And as far as, as they know, this is the worst bite by a gaboon viper that's been survived in the world. And you say, why do you tell me all of this, Pastor Joe? Two reasons. Number one, I want us to celebrate this morning that we do not live in a place that has poisonous snakes. Now, every time that I say this, I after, and I know, I'll get emails, I'll get texts, you'll come up to me afterwards, oh, Joe, there's the pygmy rattlesnake in Indiana. There is. But very few of you have ever seen it. It's very, very rare. And there are a few of you who perhaps have seen it somewhere on a farm or here or there, but the blessings of the weather that we have outside today is that most satanic creatures like that (laughs) live in other parts of the country. And so we'll pause for a moment of celebration that we do not live in those areas. The second reason that I tell you is to give you an illustration that there are many Christians today who have been affected by a venom, a poison that's been a part of their system, not from any literal snake, but it's a poison that's carefully made into their carefully made its way into the hearts of believers who do not have their guards up. What venom is this? Well, it's the venom of discontentment. This venom evidences itself in many different ways. Perhaps it reveals itself in anger, resentment, bitterness, frustration, People who have been bitten by the serpent of discontentment and, and have this venom coursing through their veins often have a hard time enjoying life. Everything on their life is shadowed by the bitterness, the resentment because of their discontentment. The passage before us this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 if we continue on with this illustration, gives us four doses of antivenom, four vials that we can look at that can help us combat the venom of discontentment that's coursing perhaps through your veins this morning. I've entitled the message, Cures for the Cranky. Cures for the Cranky. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, 
For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity, transient, a mist. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let, not, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Fathers, we look into your word this morning. Would you illumine our hearts through the power of the Spirit to see your truth? Father, if there's one here who is not a Christian, who has not accepted you as their King, as their Lord and Savior, would you turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh and breathe life into that soul this morning that they may place their faith and trust in you alone? In your name we pray. Amen. Cures for the cranky. I'd like to offer you four vials of antiventum to cure your crankiness. This morning, we'll go through them. I'll give all four of them to you, and then we'll go through them one at a time. The first one is going to be to take action. The second, stop waiting. The third, be faithful. And the fourth, remember judgment. Remember judgment. You don't need to write them down because I'll go through them one at a time. The first vial that we'll inject ourselves with this morning as a cure for crankiness and discontentment is going to be to take action, verses 1 and 2. Look at the first word of verse 1 and the first word of verse 2. These are both action words. The first word of verse 1 is to give. The second or I'm sorry, cast, the first word of verse 2, is to give. These are action words, to take action. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Some of you have been following along on the book that we have offered called Recovering Eden. We have it in our, in our resource center that walks you through Ecclesiastes. If you were to read different passages or different books, excuse me, commentaries on this one verse, you would find a myriad of different meanings for this. In fact, I'm convinced that people who quote this, cast your bread upon the waters, don't really know what it means. It just sounds really good, right? Cast your bread upon the waters for you will receive it back on, in after many days. What does that even mean? And if you were here for our 4th of July picnic as we gathered at Greg and Paula Elliott's beautiful property, he has a pond there that he keeps stocked with fish. And we have a fishing competition with whoever's there to see who can catch the biggest fish. And a trophy that gets engraved with the person who, who, who wins. But what you don't know is for days prior to this, Greg has been feeding his fish so they're nice and fat. And they're not hungry by the time you get there because he doesn't want you catching all of the fish out of his pond. And so he takes bread, as we've done with him. We take bread and you cast it upon the waters. But I have news for you. The bread that you cast upon the waters, you're not going to get back. 
The fish are going to come, they're going to eat it. Perhaps you ball it up in a, in a ball and you throw it in, 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 in the, the pond there and the bread sinks to the bottom where the catfish will come and eat it and all this stuff. The bread that you're casting on the waters, there's no way you're going to get it back, right? And so people have tried to come with all sorts of different uh, meanings of this, this verse. Warren Wearsby would say that, uh, that this verse means that, that you need to plant your seeds uh, on the bank of the shore so that the water will feed it and you'll have a full harvest. Warren Wiersbe is often very, very helpful in his uh, commentaries. They're called the BE, B-series commentaries. Very, very helpful. But I think in this case, I, I don't think that that's what this verse is talking about because I think these two verses go together and from all the options that I've looked at and in studying this on my own, I think the best argument would say that this verse is telling you to give freely of your resources, to cast your bread upon the waters. Like taking loaves of bread and tearing them up into pieces and walking out on that pier and throwing the bread out on the water liberally so that all the fish would be attracted and just perhaps you could catch one of those prized fish And maybe get your name on the trophy. Throwing the bread out on the water. So God is calling us as a cure for your discontentment to give freely of your resources. You know, those who have the most very rarely are those who are the most content. This does not mean that you have to give away so you cannot provide for your own life or your own family. It's asking us to reflect the character of God by freely giving to others. Cast your bread upon the waters. Freely giving as a regular habit to those in need. This is not a call to waste your resources by just giving them all away. This is a call to strategic and specific placement of hard-earned resources for kingdom endeavors. Of saying that, that you, as we learned last year in our, in our series on, uh, on stewardship of everything in your life, of your time, of your family, of your resources, of your, your finances, that you are simply a, a, a culvert, a pipe through which God is flowing resources. And you can divert those resources to what you see fit. And friend, this is a call to divert your resources and to give to kingdom work to the gospel. What better investment can you make than the guaranteed investment that God will build his church? Giving to your local church is the most important way that you can oversee your giving to make sure that it's accomplishing gospel endeavors. There are so many Christian organizations and and great Christian parachurch ministries that are doing incredible gospel work. But unless you serve on the board of those ministries, you must trust them to use those gospel finances rightly. You diverting your resources to your local church as your primary source of giving is an opportunity for you as a member to examine the way that those funds are being used and for you to hold the church to account to use the resources that God has provided for the gospel's sake. Notice the result of an active giving 
The result of actively giving is a passive reception. Cast your bread upon the waters and then go chase it down. No. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it. You will receive it after many days. God does not say to give freely of your resources and then turn and demand a return from him. God, I gave a dollar. Where's my two dollars back? Lord, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, and my bank account isn't growing. That we use our resources for the gospel's sake, that we cast our bread upon the waters and we recognize that we are a passive recipient when God chooses to work. I was talking to a missionary who was explaining that even on their missionary income, they had made it a point to support other missionaries personally and give to church planting endeavors and, and through their family would give of their resources even though they were the recipient of people giving to them. And he made this comment I'll never forget. This was years ago. He said, Joe... God has blessed us because we gave. Not financially. But Joe, all of my children love the Lord. And I have children serving on the mission field. And I have sons serving in pastoral ministry. And we have received more than we could ever ask for. So friend, cast your bread upon the water because you're not responsible for seeing the returns on your spiritual investments. You can't save anybody, but you can give the gospel. You're responsible to make sure that you're casting your resources in a responsible way. That would be your time. That would be your energy. That would be your family. That would be your resources. That would be your money. In every aspect of your life, even your spiritual gifting within the church, that you are being a good steward to give liberally and let God take care of the rest. God blesses in his timing and in his way because you're laying up treasures in heaven by investing your treasures in gospel ministries here on this earth. The applications go so far beyond just finances, friend. And so you take that truth and apply it to your heart in an area in which the Holy Spirit is prompting. Secondly, diversify your resources. Very practically, remember, Solomon is writing out of wisdom, and he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on this earth. Speaking to one of our deacons this weekend at our deacons retreat, and he is uh, working in a secular uh, a job, and he said, it's amazing how much the secular world recognizes biblical management strategies as the right way to go. Because God's way is best for human flourishing. And if you're preparing for retirement, and you were to take your nest egg, and you were to walk up to an investor, and you say, I want to take my entire retirement portfolio, and I want to invest in that company, what's the guy going to say? Probably not the best thing to do. Not saying you don't trust the guy who runs it, not saying you don't really, 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 really think they're going to do well, but I would encourage you to diversify. And this is Solomon's simple wisdom. Diversify in your life. This concept, once again, can be applied to every aspect of life. Serve broadly, invest broadly and widely. Witness broadly and widely because you never know where the return's going to come. 
Use your spiritual gifts in many different ways in the church. As a church family, we should be involved in a variety of ministries, seeing the gospel go forward on a variety of fronts as God continues to build his church. So number one, take action. Take action. The second goes along with it. In fact, if you were taking these two anti-venom vials, you might want to combine them together because the second one is stop waiting. Take action, and secondly, stop waiting. Stop waiting. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Stop waiting. God will never put you in a situation on this earth where you cannot accomplish his will in exactly where he's placed you. There is no time where you have to wait to do what God wants you to do. You are doing what God wants you to do if you live in righteousness. And what Solomon wants you to see is stop waiting. Well, I'm just waiting to get married. Well, I'm just waiting to have kids. Well, I'm just waiting for my kids to leave the house. Well, I'm just waiting on grandkids. Hint, 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 hint. I'm just waiting to die. Well, full of waiting. And Solomon says, stop waiting. Take action and stop waiting. This is where it gets really personal. Because he says, stop making excuses. We all have an excuse, don't we? I mean, how many times have we gone to exercise and you wake up and you go, I think my foot hurts. Let me check. Yep, yep, can't exercise today. Stop making excuses. Look at verse 3. Sometimes it will rain. Sometimes trees will fall down. It's a part of life. Sometimes it will snow. Sometimes the sun will shine. And it will burn you. Ever met somebody who's never content with the weather? It's too hot. It's too cold. Too many leaves. Not enough leaves. Everything's dead. I hate the pollen. You know, on and on and on and on and on and on. All these excuses, excuses, excuses. Solomon says, listen, stop waiting. Look at verse 4. If you need to go out and plant seeds, oh, but it's too windy. If I, if I throw the seeds, my rows won't be straight. I, I can't plant because it's too windy, right? Look, it looks like it's going to rain. I better not go pull in the crops. You can't stop rain. You can't keep the trees from falling down. Sometimes you can't move the trees where they fall. You just got to get over it. You got to stop waiting. You got to stop making excuses. You got to take action. Friend, listen, the perfect circumstance will never avail itself to you. There will always be something wrong. We are experts at finding excuses for things. Stop making excuses. Stop waiting for the perfect timing. Life is about taking opportunities, not waiting for the perfect situation. 
because you have to take advantage of the time you have. You don't know that you'll have more time. You don't know it's going to get better. You don't know that it's ever going to get warm again. Sure, it will, right? But don't let that be an excuse for going on a walk. Real practical. Solomon's just saying, stop making excuses. And on the spiritual side of things, friend, don't miss opportunities that God's providing for you because you're waiting on opportunities to be perfect. Well, I would have witnessed to him, but he didn't ask me how to get saved. It's because he doesn't know he needs to be saved. Well, I, I would have done this, but I just, I just don't know enough Bible. You have your phone. Do you know how many versions of the Bible are available for free? I don't know what that Bible passage means. Then read it. Oh, I can't read. Then learn to read. You know, it's like, stop making excuses. Take action. Stop waiting. It's never going to be perfect enough. Ever. I'm waiting to join the church until there are no problems. We're always going to have problems. It's just the way that it is. So stop making excuses. And take action. Not only stop making excuses, but verse 5, trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereignty. Verse 5 reminds us that we don't know everything. Friend, let me remind you that you can't see anything outside of your own little personal experience and your viewpoint in, in your family, in your time period. So you have to trust. Well, I'll trust as long as I know what God is doing. No, that's not how trust works. You, we don't know. And so Solomon uses the illustration, you don't know how a baby is formed inside a mother's womb. Now with technology today, we can, we can see with cameras, we can see with you know, ultrasounds and 3D ultrasounds and all this kind of stuff and see that baby form. But, but you still don't know how it happens. You don't know why certain things happen certain ways in one aspect and they don't happen in another. We can observe, but we don't know. Because God is the author of life. God does that. And so you have to rest in the power and wisdom of God. Why does it seem like it's only on Sunday that it gets snowy and icy. Why? I don't know. Why, does, why is something happening in your family? I don't know, but God does. Why does it seem like every time you want to talk to your neighbor about the gospel, they can't get together? I don't know, but don't stop trying. Don't make excuses. I don't know why some things are some way and some things are other ways. Only God knows that. But don't use it as an excuse not to take action. We quote Romans 8.28 all the time. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That means that God works everything in your life for your good and his glory if you're a believer. You quote it, but do you believe it? Because some of our lives do not reflect that. It's like we say that we believe Romans 8.28, but then we act as though God hates us. We must trust more than our eyes can see. We must fully believe and trust God. 
My wife often uses a phrase that, that I love and that I've started using. She says it this way, if I knew what God knows, I wouldn't be worried about it. If I knew what God knows, I'd be fine. But I don't. So what do I have to do? I have to trust. I have to trust. Take action. Stop waiting. Stop making excuses. Trust in God's sovereignty. Thirdly, be faithful. Be faithful. Look at verses 6 through 8. In the morning, sow your seed. In an evening, withhold not your hand or continue sowing. Remember, this is poetic language here from Solomon as he's showing us wisdom. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Solomon is using figurative language and using this illustration again of of a person planting seeds, like he did with the person saying, oh, I can't plant seeds because the wind's blowing. I'll wait till it's perfect. Or I can't gather the crops because it looks like it might rain. He's using this illustration again to picture your life. And here's what he's saying. In your early years, be faithful. In your later years, be faithful. Don't stop. I wrote it this way in verse 6. Don't become idle in your later years. Don't become idle in your later years. You know, the Bible knows nothing of idle retirement. You can read the Bible from front to back and it never says that you should stop working. That doesn't mean that you always get paid for what you do, but you were created for work. In fact, at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, I'm actually going to do a message, a little teaser for you, on the theology of work because God gave work before the fall, which means that work is good. And those who sit idle are normally the most miserable. And you see all through the New Testament actually warning after warning after warning in the epistles of those in the church who would sit idly by, though scripture calls them busybodies, that they have nothing to do so they create their own problems. So what does it say to do? Admonish them to work with their hands. Stop critiquing someone else's work and you go try. That's what he's saying. To our older generation, can I entreat you as a son, please do not be idle in retirement in your later years. Verse 6 says, working in the early years, working in the later years, working in the morning, working in the evening. Now obviously the hours that you are able to work and the amount of work that you are able to do, or even the nature, the kind of work that you are able to do will vary greatly in different life stages. For some, the the 10 to 12 hour workday has shifted to a two to four hour workday. And the work that is to be that is to be done may be maintaining a lawn or or laboring in prayer, or ideally both. Or perhaps 
giving of time to Christian endeavors. And you say, I I don't need an income anymore. Then, Then donate your time and find something to do to invest in kingdom work for the time that you can. This is not a guilt trip of saying that if you're 70, you should be working like you're 17. Saying, don't be idle. Don't live an idle lifestyle. This does not mean that you cannot retire. But your goal should be to never be in a place in your life where you're simply fiddling away your days in idleness. Brother or sister in Christ, do not buy into the lie of the world that the ultimate goal in this life is to stop working and do nothing. In my studies this week, I came across two research projects that tracked the causes of death among seniors. Both concluded that retiring early is linked to early death because of inactivity and boredom. Delayed or no retirement helps you live longer. Now, I grew up in the South, okay? And in our church, you were kind of part of the seniors group, kind of initiated in when you turn 60. And when you turn 65, you're like an active part. But in the Midwest, this is a totally different story. I mean, you're not even part of the seniors group until you hit 75, right? I mean, we have some people in our church that have lived amazing lives into their 90s and they're still active and and working because they have to, whether they live on a farm or whatever it is. And it's amazing to me. It's incredible. And statistically, the reason that's true is because people have stayed active in working. Again, I'm not saying getting paid for a job. I'm saying being busy doing work, doing If you have time and you don't need an income, the work of the ministry. Don't ever stop working for the Lord. Don't ever stop working. My my father-in-law, who was an old-time evangelist, would say, I don't plan on retiring, I plan on retreading. You know, put a new set of treads on me and let's keep going. Why? Is this true? Because you can have a longer life, partially, but Solomon actually gives us a reason. Look down. Look down at verse 6. Look at the second half of the verse. For you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Friends, you don't know if your best days are ahead of you. If you quit, they won't be. Did you know that later on in your life, you can have a greater spiritual impact than at any other time? Did you know that as you grow with life experience, friends that are here in their sunset years in their life, listen carefully, you've been studying the Bible longer than many of us have been alive. Did you know that now should be the time when you should be having the greatest ministry? And yet for some reason, there's this cultural picture that in those years, you just step back. And worse yet, there are some in their younger years who would encourage the stepping back rather than the leaning in. Because Solomon says, listen, you don't know which is going to be most productive. You don't know if the last five years of your life, you're going to leave more people to Christ than you did the first 85. 
You don't know if your prayer life and your spiritual growth can just take off in the last few months of your life. That would it be said of every one of us that as we cross into glory, that we're going in the prime of our spiritual condition. That we are growing and growing and growing. So don't give up. The best days of your spiritual life could be right in front of you. There should be no tapering off in your sanctification and holiness and your investment in the lives of the church and your dedication to gospel endeavors. Don't take a step back. Take two steps in, even if you need to use a walker to do it, you know? It's like, come on. Don't give up. Your best spiritual days could be ahead of you. Invest in the church where they don't want me. You don't know that. There are young families in this church who are dying for an opportunity and and would beg for someone to come just help them in their parenting. They're just trying to keep their head above water and sometimes their head's so far below water they got a straw just trying to breathe. You haven't had kids for years, but guess what? Kids don't change. It's the same thing. They're all pagans. (laughs) They still want to disobey. And you can come up beside a young dad or a young mom and say, hey, what if once a month we got coffee and I could just help you? What if I just invested in your life? I got time. I got so much time I don't know what to do with, but I'm not going to be idle. So what am I going to do? I'm going I'm to invest. I'm going to work. Leaning in. Now, you're not off the hook if if you're young in the room. I want you to listen from a quote from Jean Fleming, who wrote a book, Pursue the Intentional Life. She says the following. The truth is, all things unchanged, the people we are at 70, 80, and 90 are those who we are at 40 and 50, only distilled. Have you noticed that the flaws and weaknesses of a 40-year-old concentrate with age? A complainer at 40, with much practice, will engrave it in his bones by 70. Self-centeredness will intensify. Bitterness, allowed to take root and grow over decades, engulfs and consumes in advanced age. Well, I'll fix it when I'm older. No, you won't. Friend, who you are now is who you're going to be when you're older only distilled. So take all your flaws and put them in a concentrate form and that's who you're going to be. That's who your grandkids will know you as. Take all your spiritual pursuits and expand them. And friends, that's who you will be in the future. So if you're young, listen, spend your time investing in spiritual pursuits. Know your Bible now because you're going to need it later. Pour into Scripture Be faithful to prepare for your sunset years. Be investing in your spiritual life. Take the time now to root out sin and bitterness. Spend as much time as you can in Scripture. Make patterns of prayer and meditation in your life now as those things will simply be distilled in the future. Be faithful. Part of being faithful in verses 7 and 8 is to be honest about what's coming in your life. 
Solomon says in verses 7 and 8, expect good days and expect dark days. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Light is sweet and pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is Hebel. It's all vanity. It's all passing. Your life will be filled with moments of ease and moments of hardship. Life is made up of periods of time in which laughter is the greatest medicine. And also periods of time where weeping seems to be the only thing you can do. So prepare. Your life will be filled with moments which are fantastically amazing. And others which are unbelievably hard. You need to expect times in your life of physical hardship, of emotional distress, of spiritual valleys. Don't let these catch you off guard, but also remember that these moments, whether good or bad, are fleeting. The good moments will fall away like a breath in an early, cold morning, but friends, so will the hard ones. It's like the mom after hours and hours of hard labor finally holding that little one and forgetting how hard it really was. Prepare your heart for when you meet trials of various kinds for you need to remember that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As Pastor James would say, now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials for for a little while. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare yourself for the good moments and enjoy them. And prepare yourself for the hardships. And recognize that they too are fleeting. Life is but a vapor. All that comes is Hebel. It's here and it's gone. The last vial of antivenom that we're going to see for discontentedness this morning is found in verses 9 and verse 10. And it's the vial of remembering judgment. Remember judgment. Verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Friend, you will one day give an account before God. The most terrifying and awe-inspiring thought in all of history is that there is a God and I am accountable to Him. And one day, whether you are a Christian or not, you will kneel on nothing with no one beside you and you will give an account before God. And believer, you will give an account for your life, not to gain entrance into paradise. For that is gained only by faith. Oof. To have access to the rewards that will be a part of eternity. Solomon says, take advantage of your life while you're young. Right? 
Go hiking while your knees still work. Because one day they won't. Play basketball while your back can still take it. Because one day it won't be able to. Enjoy your youth. But remember that you'll give an account. As you're living your life for the glory of God, remember the boundaries that God has set up for your good. Live in righteousness and holiness. Stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his leading towards the word of God. My dad used to tell me when he would leave, they'd leave town or leave us alone for any amount of time, son, don't do anything that I wouldn't do twice. Okay? That was pretty good advice. Remember, judgment day is coming. Friend, you've only been given so many hours on this earth. And if you're here this morning, you're not done yet. So remember judgment. The greatest motivator to live a holy life is to recognize that one day you will look God face to face and you will give an account for your life. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen very carefully. It doesn't matter how much you reject him here on this earth. One day in eternity, you will bow before him. Ephesians chapter 2 says that when Jesus calls all before him, every knee will bow. The things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, in fact, to the glory of God the Father. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to recognize that you will either bow your knee on this earth by faith to the Lord of all creation and accept him as your king, or one day in eternity you will bow by force and you will be forced to recognize his position to the glory of God before being cast into outer darkness for all of eternity. So I beg you to choose Jesus now because you will choose him later. You will give an account. You will face judgment. Verse 10, because of that, don't waste the time that you have. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Three aspects here as we close. They all start with R so we can remember them. Don't waste the time that you have. So the first thing you need to do is you need to release the sins of the past. Remove vexation from your heart. That word vexation means anger, bitterness. It means the torture of your soul that comes from a a spirit of consternation inside of you. A vexed heart. Friend, is your heart tortured by you holding on to hurt from others in your past? You can't control what others do to you, but you can control how you respond to them. When I'm speaking to teenagers, I'll often, in fact, this would be good for us to do. Everybody take your hand, okay? We don't do this very often. Let's pretend like we're in children's church, okay? We can do this. We're not above it. So everybody hold your hand out, okay? And then I want you to make a fist, and I want you to squeeze it as hard as you can. I mean, as hard as you can until your knuckles turn white, and you feel it in your palm. You squeeze and squeeze and squeeze hard, and then I want you to open real fast. And you feel your muscles release. You feel that sensation of letting go. And God's calling you to let it go, to release. 
the hurt and the pain and the sin done against you to remove from your heart the bitterness? Can you change what happened? No. But when you harbor the anger and the bitterness, it only destroys you. And so what do you do? You turn it over to God and you release. The word in the New Testament to be loosed, apoluo, to release, is translated forgive. Take that hurt, the fear, the bitterness, and give it back to God. Secondly, first of all, release. Secondly, resist. Put away pain from your body. Several different options of what this means. I believe what Solomon is saying is put away the sin from your flesh. Resist temptation. Release, resist. Fight the good fight of faith. Continue fighting. Friends, often the, the, the identifying factor of one who is redeemed, one who has the life of God inside of him and yet left with this sinful flesh is the identifier that we fight sin. And you say, I'm not, I'm not winning. No, God's already won. I'm not seeing victory. God's alive. He rose from the dead. So you're supposed to fight every day and resist and fight. And the mark of the unbeliever is that there's no fight inside of him. That it's a constant giving in, a constant sinning with no conviction. And yet we as believers are called to resist to the end. Because your fight may not end on this earth. You may have been involved in a sin pattern for so long that the saying no to that sin will continue for the rest of your life. And when you open your eyes in heaven, you look at Jesus and you say, I fought for you to the end. And I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought. And you lay aside the sin of the flesh. And thirdly, you remember. In fact, I think Solomon is is changing gears here as he's ending his sermon. He's kind of summarizing chapter 11 and maybe everything that's come before it with release the pain, resist the sin, and remember that life is short. Youth and the dawn of life are but vanity. There's a folk group called Jamestown Revival. They have a song that I've been playing. I like old acoustic folk songs. And it's a song about a guy who goes down to pick up rocks out of a river. And he looks at his reflection. And he says, where did the young man go? That one in the water that I used to know. Did he lose the fire? Did he just grow old? Did he just grow tired? Some of you look in the mirror and you go, I don't know who's looking back at me, but that doesn't look like me. Because youth and the dawn of time fly by so fast, don't they? And so remember, you don't have forever. Life is short. Life is hard. But God is so good. And may he give us the grace to be content In whatsoever state I am, I have discovered to be content. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the truth of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture and the way in which it just hits us right where we are. That understanding this chapter, we recognize that there is truth for every single person in this room. God, I pray that you would make us content with our circumstances so that we can take action. We can stop making excuses, stop waiting so that we can be faithful and that we can remember judgment. That as those four aspects of our life are woven into our very character and our being, that we would be children who would live a life that's honoring and glorifying to you in, in so many ways. As the venom of discontentment threatens to bear down on our hearts and our souls. That we would be involved in, in your word, interacting, talking, receiving your word. And that your, your word as it shines on us would give us your glory and change, change us into faithful citizens of heaven. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can I just ask you to spend just a brief moment in response and reflection of what you've heard? If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you call out to God in the dependence of your heart? Align yourself under his authority. Recognize that he is the only way to God's grace and love. That no one comes to the Father except by Christ. Place yourself in his arms by faith, and call out to him alone to be rescued and forgiven from your sin. Christian, where has God placed his finger on your life today? Would you not waste the truth? Would you live your life in obedience, in alignment with what God has revealed? However, God has revealed his truth to you this morning. Would you respond and reflect in your seats?